to the fourth season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This is Pod Clubhouse's coverage of the first episode on the, well, I guess it's the first couple of episodes on the first night of releases. So this is going to be episode one and episode two. First, we'll tackle episode one, Rumble on the Wonder Wheel. This is Paul. This is Caroline. This first one was written and directed by Amy Sherman Palladino, and it has her fingerprints all over it. This episode really made me feel like it's not so much what happened, but how it happened. Not so much what the conversation was, but the choreography behind that conversation. There were so many moving parts and it was just like a visual fiesta, Paul. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about the wheel. Primarily, I think that involves Midge's story, although every character is there. When I think about the staging of that scene, Mm -hmm. I think of it in terms of how I've seen a lot of other iconic Sherman Palladino moments, except all of those were limited by the number of characters they could get on screen at one time. Sometimes they can do this with like a, maybe a phone call that goes in multiple directions or yeah. or maybe a large group conversation where it's got the rapid fire and people hearing things one way and understanding things another way and people having side conversations. But you're limited by how many people you can get on screen at once. But this wheel lets you have everybody in at the same time. So it's like Paladino madness. (laughs) It was Paladino madness. I appreciated how it also allowed for this conversation to be happening in 360 degrees. Like you could be yelling up and down and left to right behind you, above you. Like it was just like all around you conversation was happening and all different conversations were happening. Were you relieved that Midge just came clean about what happened with the Shy Baldwin tour and what was going to be going on like right here at the start of season one? Yeah, because they had kind of strung along this idea that she was not going to be super truthful about it. And then finally, yes, it did. And But by finally, I mean only 20 minutes into this fiasco, not... You know, I didn't want it to go like five episodes and her like being like putting on like different accents from like different countries in the background and all kinds of stuff. I'm glad we just got through this right away in episode one. Thematically, having seen both of these episodes and not any more than that, Rose's words from last season about men blowing up lives seem to really hit home. I mean, she reuses those words but also this new direction where she wants to take her future by the hand in a way that that she hadn't before, but specifically with regard to allowing men to impact it. Did those words also resonate with you in terms of the importance you think they might have on this season? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, they did such a great job of setting it up in the in the latter half of season three, where every single person was like, your husband did this and whatever this husband does or whatever your boyfriend does or whatever your manager does or in, in the case of Shy Baldwin, like kind of co-star does. All of these men were the outcome. Like whatever they decided was the outcome. And Midge and Susie and Rose and and really to, to many degrees, uh, even uh, Shirley, like everybody just had to put up with what, <laughs> what they were left with and try to piece it together into a life for themselves. I was boggled with the amount of changes and how quickly things had to get turned around. Can we do like the little flashback how they actually brought us to the place of right after the tarmac? 
Absolutely. What caught my eye, and maybe you can say... Besides all the nudity. (laughs) Oh, right. The nudity. Uh, But perhaps I just haven't been paying close enough attention, but the kind of the Audrey Hepburn look that she had on stage in the... I won't call it a flash forward. It's more like the now versus the flashback mm-hmm. in that first episode. Right. I just don't remember her taking the stage smoking with pedal pushers before. Right. I think we're moving forward in fashion, you know, within the decades. So we're moving forward in the 60s and she's getting a little bit out of that total like 1950s housewife look and getting a little bit more into that 1960s, like pedal pushers and flats and stuff like that. That's super common, I would say. And I appreciated how they did that act, you know, as a bookend in that episode one where they were basically like, we were working a lot of timelines here. So, you know, she was speaking to the tarmac situation, but how messed up it had gotten in the papers. Very purple monkey dishwasher, like you were saying, of so many people talking about an issue and really strange amount of facts are coming out, you know. But let's talk about that that taxi cab incident and the the nudity and the just the the, the casting off of her old clothes, her old life, if you will. That continues also to tie into everything that she wants to claim for her future self, right? I know you want to talk about the taxi. I'm just saying it ties into what she does in the bedroom uh, later. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the chaos of it all. Exactly. I have, <laughs> I think I've actually lived through a few moments of being so upset and so not being able to comprehend how you're going to get from here to your future so that you just laugh and and kind of go (laughs) in between moments of of hysterical laughter and not. And to the outside world, it's like your brain is broken. Oh, yeah. I mean, so for those of you who follow us on other podcasts, Paul and I have three special needs kids, but two in particular spent a lot of time in the NICU. And there were times when we were washing up in our surgical gowns to go, you know, like, you know, maybe this is like month four and we're going every single day to the hospital and every visiting hour and we're laughing and we're like tossing the soap to each other. Like we're doing some sort of like vaudevillian act or something. And yeah, if you watched it from the outside, you would think, wow. (laughs) Real funny times. They've really lost their shit. But, you know, in reality, I think you're right. Sometimes when things are, they're so extreme, they become almost absurd. And then that just, it's, it just makes you be like, there's nothing I can do, but like release the pressure cooker. Some people break something. Some people punch something. Some people laugh. I prefer laughter. It's sometimes it's the futility of trying anything else. Yeah. Is which, is why you have to laugh. <laughs> which I got to say, the entire taxi cab scene, the futility in trying anything, that give and take between Midge and Susie with like, you know, hitting the cab with the with the tree, tree or whatever, branch, yeah. yeah. And then and just getting completely nude and like I'm saying nude, but obviously she was wearing her undergarments. But but I mean, it it was a lot. We really hadn't seen that kind of side, if you will, or butt of Midge, you know, in really in most of this. So what I'm feeling is that having seen episodes one and two, which we're going to talk about, I think that there is something about stripping away our clothes, right? <laughs> That's going to happen and strip away kind of all the old things that that we were doing. All the this white prim and proper suit ends up getting, you know, this huge big like run over tire mark on it. That type of thing. Like it's just all over. It's roadkill. 
literally roadkill her old life. And she's going to have to do everything differently. I have to say that just for comic relief, the like slap fighting between her and Susie, when when Susie starts hitting her with her hat, I mean... I was rolling like that was such a hilarious way to start the season. And I don't think it was stage fighting. I think it was. Oh, like, no, I think they were slapping. Yeah, I think I think they just had to tell each other we're going to actually have to hit each other for this to work. <laughs> That's really, really funny. Because the looks on their faces matched up with getting hit. <laughs> right. They were right? like shocked. Oh, my God. I mean, I know that this is going to take a lot of our audiences aback, you know, be like, what is this? What are they reducing the situation to where these women, you know, are actually slapping at each other? But that's the thing. I mean, this is rock bottom. No, I mean, we go and we're ending up spending the night in the gaslight, like taking a snooze on the benches, drinking out of someone else's used liquor bottle, like, Oh my lord, things are going poorly. Although they have the apartment, they have no money. Susie keeps saying things like, I can't book you. Susie herself has a need to try to learn about the business so that she can provide for Midge given the new direction. So when you say rock bottom, it's like all factors are there, are right there from starting from starting fresh. So taking off your clothes, rearranging your bedroom, all matches up with that. Plus Midge herself is starting to show some signs of adopting a new direction in that when she recognizes the newspaper having the story the next morning would reflect that they had been told before she was told. Yeah. What a slam, man, that Reggie would have told the papers already and still made them come all the way out to the tarmac. Man, do you feel like that was like overly cruel? Well, maybe he was hoping against hope that there's just like some last second reprieve. Oof, that's a nice way to think of it. But it does show us that Midge is using more savvy, you know, in terms of recognizing the difference between people you work with and friends. You know, it's been a painful lesson and she may still have some bumps and bruises along the way, but she might not be as fast to make that mistake in the future. Kind of that weird blase attitude that the bass player had, Liza Wiles' character in the last mm-hmm. season, how she was like, they come, they go, you know, that, that sort of attitude that Midge hadn't developed yet. It also makes me think of Sophie Lennon in a lot of ways when, you know, when we see that she chooses to surround herself primarily by her staff and not by anyone else. And you start to realize like people like that, they've all been burned. You know, they've been burned by so many people over so many years, people who they thought were friends, people who were colleagues who ended up burning them. You know, it starts to make sense, like why they just live alone with their dogs in their house, you know, with their staff, because Mm. they pay those people to, to do what they say and that's it. Going back to that theme of getting blown up by men, did you notice in this episode and the next episode the presence of some online rabble rouser by the name of, not online, <laughs> this is the 60s, uh, newspaper rabble rouser named Eugene, who keeps digging at her, trying to continue this idea that she sucks. Now, I haven't looked at the IMDb. Do you think that is Milo Ventimiglia's character? I would love it if it was because it would be like something for them to really like row about like right away. And I would really like to see that. But I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of expecting him to play a love interest, but it makes complete sense for him to start off with, I don't know, kind of this like pulling her hair kind of bit, right? (laughs) Exactly. 
I don't have any further insight into it, but I think what you're saying about the sparks flying, giving her someone to bounce off of beyond Susie that can keep up with the wordplay and stuff. Like we were hoping to get that last season when she met May and instead we got not quite the battle between two word-wielding women that we were expecting, you know, that, that meet up at the, at the club. So that's a great starting point for this unlikely romance. Cause there have, like I said, I haven't been looking at the IMDb, but I haven't ignored the pictures from the set with Milo and, and Rachel strolling down Central oh, Park yeah. hand in hand, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that would be a, a delicious way to start that relationship. <laughs> Cats well, and dogs. It definitely feels like who is this mysterious writer who can, who just can't seem to like let it go? What's up his butt? What is up his butt? I'd like to know. <laughs> When I was crafting my notes yes. for this podcast, although every major character appears in this episode, there were really only three that stood out as having a substantial amount of story, which was Midge, Susie, and Joel. So let's flip over to Susie. Okay. Because these three really intertwine throughout. Right. I feel like both of these episodes were like this very elaborate choreographed dance between all the people. Like, couldn't you see them with all like ribbons and they're like, one's going under the other one and one's going on the other one. The like, maypole. Yeah, it's like very, it's, it's very well crafted. I really hope the rest of the season's like this. They're going to get me very spoiled to how they're, how they're filming everything and the music and just all the scenes are just so well crafted. Got to set expectations. Oof, I hope they, I hope they hang on to them. The main theme with Susie's story for these couple of episodes for me, well, there's two. There's dealing with her money. Yes. And then there's dealing with this new direction and focusing on Midge and what she wants to do and having no idea how to accomplish it. Let's cover the money aspect first. Yeah. So I was surprised to see that the insurance company was resolved within these two episodes, to be honest with you, but they sure gave us a good scare. What did you think about Mr. B and uh, that entire uh, dark room? <laughs> just first of all, just having the false door situation, the false, I should, I, it's a real door, but it's a false right. wall, right? Right, exactly. Having the false wall where where they're going down. block hallway. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. What were you thinking was going to happen? It felt like an interrogation. That's what I have in my notes is that it's not an interview. It's an interrogation. Um, and then the very goon looking person comes in. Like if he if he had other credits as a mobster or a, or a knee breaker or <laughs> right. something, that wouldn't make sense for <laughs> me. Um, I'm sure he's a very upstanding guy in real life, you know, pays his taxes, et cetera. But as a character actor, he's a good knee breaker, leg breaker, et cetera, any limb. <laughs> Finger knuckle smasher. <laughs> right, exactly. Nose buster. Did you notice that... For Wait, did you to answer me? Were you surprised that this was like an actual, oh, yeah. like a freaking shakedown situation? Well, and that Tess was completely available for, <gasps> um, what, what did she say? Just blowing the guy at lunch? <laughs> Ultimately. As the solution right, when to she gets avoid the, jail? Yeah, when she gets the job, she's like, I just have to do some stuff to him in the bathroom at lunch. <laughs> Holy smokes, man. Well, we all could use a test in our life, I suppose, for one reason or the other, I suppose. Wow. Couldn't we all? I would love someone to be doing stuff to me at lunch. 
you know, for as formidable as Susie is verbally, yes, she still has a track record, I guess, of dealing with these male characters like this, right? When the manager from the casino in the last season showed any kind of aggression, even though it wasn't toward her, she backed off and got very, I don't know how to proceed. Right. And this guy didn't even show any aggression. He just showed... Well, that was an intimidating situation. Right. Right. Exactly. But yeah, he had he had her at a, at a disadvantage in a room where... Uh, no they, one could hear you. They couldn't hear you, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden, she's acting very submissive and like we don't want any trouble, kind kind of thing. Well, what in the world is her other recourse, sir? Well, I don't know. I just what would you do? You're pulling out like your brass knuckles. You're gonna fight him in the cinder block room? Well, no, no. But her words are formidable. Doesn't she know? No, not in this case. These people are more formidable and they have actual like ammo to back them up. I mean, she is the fake it till you make it girl. She doesn't have anything backing her up. She can talk a good talk, but my God, this, these people could bury their bodies in their cinder block walls and nobody's right. finding them. Just build another room six feet in front of the other one. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is the only way that she could handle the situation. And like, bravo to Tess for being willing to be like, you know what? She's, I, what I find hilarious is the fact that she's married and there's like this whole, like everybody gets that she has a husband, but her husband's like thrilled that she got this job and all this stuff. Like, I think that's all so funny. And so just like, there's men who blow your life up and there's also like ways to play men to get whatever you want out of your life. And that's a hundred percent what Susie and Tess were doing. They blew some other stuff. Well, and, you know, in terms of the concept of of a female woman, her... A female woman. ...being taken advantage of, I don't think that's the case here, right? Even though, you know, he's obviously getting his his, his daily BJ out of the deal, <laughs> she's she's avoiding prison. Before too long, he'll forget about it. She seems to enjoy the, the job of what she's doing Right, there, exactly. Whatever, so I think it's fine. I think she's coming out just fine on this deal. Tess is happy to get out of the house. Get away from the husband who she wishes was dead oh, when, yeah. when she wakes up. <laughs> yeah, she always checks to make sure if he's dead or not. Oh, that's so funny. I can't believe the money actually worked out. Can you believe they actually got the check? Kind I'm of no. floored that yeah. they got the check. And in the meantime, that Joel was willing to front the money to Susie just to float the situation so no one would know. Well, I want to come back to that. No. <laughs> yes. Okay. What I hope that that message tells us is that they have better plot to get to than worrying about this element of it. I think we still need to worry about Susie's management of money. Yes. And how that relates to Joel, etc. Uh, but, and, and Midge, obviously. I was going to say, uh, with Joel? <laughs> well, what I wanted to come back to with Joel is that he writes that check pretty fast. Yeah. But he demands that story. Okay. I'm wondering if this is his way of keeping himself in Midge's life. Like, okay, you can get the money, which will save Midge, but you got to tell me all the all the goings on. Do you think that's simply just so that he's not getting in business with someone that he he doesn't know anything about? Or do you think it's a way of finding out what's been happening with Midge? Because he's only getting like the headlines that she wants to share. 
Ooh, I, so I was leaning in towards more like so that he has some sort of like blackmail or something like that. Like he knows the real story of everything. But you're saying this is more like the ex-husband who just is a lack of information. And so he this was just a way to get more about what's going on. I'm saying don't overlook that possibility. Okay, I won't overlook it. How about that? Let's put that on the bulletin board. Is Joel hungry for mage info? Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Could he just have asked her? Yes, of course. They have a pretty good relationship, but... But, I mean, no one knows but Susie what happened to the money. Yeah, yeah. Intrigue. All right, well, all right. Let's just keep an eye on, like, Joel's curious cat nature. Because he now knows more about an aspect of Midge that she doesn't even know herself. Ooh, now that could come back to haunt. I could see that being a problem. Because I could see her being all like, I know what's going on in my life and I've got it all together. And he's like, do you? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's interesting. But you paused on the like whole like he wrote that check so easily. Did you have any questions about the fact that like how good are Joel's finances? I did. I did. $50,000 in 1960s? Because he's been laying out cash to start the club and it's only been open like a day. So how could he have enough enough money just laying around to write such a big check? 50,000 in that time period would equate to something like about a half a million. Holy shit. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Just in your checkbook. Just to write it out. But you know what? He was writing it in not a regular checkbook. He was writing it in one of the business ledgers. Oh, didn't you notice he wrote it out of the big binder? Yeah, I did, but I didn't think about it. So I wonder if that's going to be problematic. Well, I mean, she repaid him, but still she there's did. this element now of information. And just money in general. Like what exactly is happening and how is the combination of Susie plus Midge plus Joel plus money not going to equal hijinks? I think we're going to be able to count on Joel and this idea of commingling money as being a non-starter plot point. Don't worry about that. But I still think the element of Susie managing money, affecting this flow of information, Midge, Joel, Mm. et cetera, is something to keep an eye on. And I wonder, is she going to rise to the occasion? I think so. Because I don't know that this is the kind of story where we're going to have like Susie tank it, <laughs> you know, but I think there are going to be some bumps and bruises along the way. More bumps and bruises than Absolutely. gambling it all away? Absolutely. More monetary bumps and bruises. Yeah. I don't think she's going to do any more gambling with Midge's money. Okay. But there's still some room to fuck things up <laughs> between here and the promised land. There's always room to fuck things up. Yes. Ask Tess. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking about Joel, and we're going to tie May into that because we don't have a, a May without a Joel. Is May putting too much trust in Joel? Is she coming down too heavy on Joel's side? I know that in in the past previous podcasts, I have discussed my own possible distrust of May, but here she cleared all that up. She was like, nope, I'm on your side in this whole deal. Joel has kind of a track record. He's new at this club ownership aspect. It's even pointed out that this club thing doesn't even make good sense in terms of like the way all the pieces come together. Okay. So given that these landlord people might be her parents, she's not committed to that she idea. She's not committed to but that. But she's tied into them in some way where they think that they can boss her around. What do you think? Is May putting a lot of stock in, in, in Joel? I have to say, I was a little surprised to see her sleeping in the factory apartment bed there. I, I didn't expect that to be happening. And I don't mean like 
for them to be sleeping together. Sure. But I, but the way that it was, it was so casual as if she was living there, you know, and that was like, what is happening here? It almost looked more like she just crashed though. Kind of did. I don't know. It was a little awkward, but anyway, do I think May's giving Joel too much credit at this point? Well, to be honest with you, she, she, she has shared very little about what is going on with her in terms of like, how much is she really relying on him when you say like trusts him or is like all in with him? Well, siding with him. She just told him. I mean, at the end of the day, Joel's paying out to the landlords, you know, this payola that was suggested by his own father. So she didn't actually negotiate any kind of compromise between them. He's just paying them to leave her, leave him alone. That feels super temporary. Well, she said, prepare to pay out the nose the next year and rent and stuff like that. So things are going to get like a lot worse. They're going to put the pressure on him. But if he died tomorrow, what is she out? Nothing. So I don't really know if she's really showing too much trust in him. I mean, I think she wants to see him succeed. And I think that in some ways he surprised her in actually being able to do more than it seemed like, you know, at the beginning, think of him just in his little gray sweatshirt painting the walls. Like, I mean, it seemed pretty sad when he just found the gambling establishment, the basement, and he was like, what, what, what? I mean, he's come far, right? With his little English to Chinese uh, dictionary thing. thing from the 1800s like she points out. My favorite thing was that that the man could speak English at the end of the day. He had no reason to do that, but it was still super funny. So I don't know. These two are interesting to me. I think the fact that she doesn't need him and that at least so far as we can tell, he is not a man who could blow up her world. I think that maybe makes him and them fascinating to me. Well, she took off for weeks last season. And was fine. And was fine. Exactly. That's kind of the point, right? It's like, yeah. wow, for all the situations that we've seen so far where a man could blow up your world, May is managing to have what seems to be a close and intimate relationship with him without risking her life being blown up, it seems. So I'm happy for May to stick around. I hope she keeps keeps coming around. She claims she keeps coming around. I mentioned it in the last season, but I still foresee that when it comes to these two actually like looking at the long haul, there will be some culture clash uh, oh, yeah. parentally. Then they themselves seem cool. Joel already said, I have to tell my parents about us to yeah. May. I mean, hello. Well, but she was snoring at the time. I think that was fake snoring. You think that was fake snoring? You don't snoring? think that was fake snoring? Ladies fake snore. Ladies fake stuff. For sure. Wow. Mind blown. Yeah. The way that she was lying there and then she was like, every time, it was like, think of how the snore would punctuate what he'd say. He'd be like, I did And then there'd be a pause and she'd go, <laughs> like as if to like not answer. Mm. Mm. All right. All right. I'm just saying, I think she heard everything he said. Since they released two episodes on the first day, as they will do for every other day that they release episodes. We're going to cover two episodes per podcast. Yes, we are. So we're going to sprint through the content as best as possible without leaving behind the important stuff. Of course. So we're going to move on now to the second episode released on the first day. This one was called Billy Jones and the Orgy Lamps. <laughs> this one was a Dan episode, both written and directed by Dan. And this one had bare boobs in it, too. Mm. 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 That was a, these were body episodes, Paul. 
Body, not B-O-D-Y, but B-A-W-D-Y. I thought that's what you meant. Yeah, I figure, I figure you know me. And not at all like Mr. Body from, from Clue. Clue. Right. Of course not. No, not, 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 not like no, that. Not Mr. That's right Body. out. That's completely not what I meant. <laughs> all right. So let's start with Mitch. One of the predictions that we made in the previous season's ending podcasts was that they would need, they being the Wisemans, need to hustle in order to make this new household work. We weren't sure how they were going to come back together, but we were pretty sure they weren't going to be living at the Maisel's suburban house anymore. And it was definitely going to take a collection of like small money here and there to like pull it all together. So we watched Midge do this dance, right? All throughout the neighborhood, reintroducing herself, but most importantly, raising her tab with everyone with the idea that hopefully if she can just stretch it long enough, she could get enough money together and kind of just be able to just like rob Peter pay Paul kind of business. And she's continuing to, as we mentioned in the first section of the podcast, run into the man's world aspect of her previous life and where it meets her current life, like with the milkman. Yeah. I mean, that was one of those times, Paul, that we talk a lot about in other podcasts, like in the Gilded Age or in 1883, where we speak a lot about the idea of, you know, women don't have a lot of choices. They can't get a credit card. They don't, they need their father or their husband or somebody to sign off on things. It's really difficult for them to get things done. And when we see that she can't expand her milk tab because essentially she doesn't have any credit with the milk company. I was like floored. Honestly, I was like, really? I mean, this is freaking crazy, but here we are back in 1960s dealing with that. There's this combination of factors in her life right now that we're starting to see building up. We have this man's world aspect where she's not getting what she wants out of career, life in general, and it's gender-based, right? So there's this frustration that she can't change. And then there's this business with her parents. She wants to be a contributor. She wants to let them live in her house. However, it's getting crowded, So I was wondering if you thought that this whole thing, this humiliating cover story of the parents buying the apartment for her when it's actually the other way around, her having to hustle to find credit with all of the various vendors that she needs to deal with, if all that might just build up one day and she just cracks, especially maybe on a day when her parents are shitting on her career when it's the one paying for the house. I definitely think that this turn that her career takes into the burlesque club 100% feels like she's ready to be surrounded by empowered women, that she wants to take the reins and be in control and somehow be the one controlling the narrative and and not have to live in the man's world, but instead somehow create this woman-empowered world where I think where they're leading us to is that she's going to thrive. What did you think when she went back to the comedy club and we have that Billy Jones portion of the title and she actually ends up getting arrested again? I hate that coincidental kind of thing that that drives a plot point, you know, where she's just overheard saying something that could be construed as solicitation. 
But what I'm seeing is these misogynistic jokes that are being said on stage, right? It's like, take my wife, please, like this kind of stuff, right? That old chestnut. Mm, and that kind of business is happening on stage. And and she's not, She they've already had a woman comic this week, so they're not willing to put her on stage. Then the second she comes outside, it just even joking around in this male-dominated world, it can only be taken one way, right? It all mm. is contributing to our man's world and that she would be stuck in jail for for joking around when you know good and well that the men are saying the same types of things, you know, and and they wouldn't get in trouble at all. So I think it was all building the case of I got to get somewhere where the women rule the show. You're leading me there by the nose, but I'm I'm getting it. I'm getting it. She goes to jail. She meets this woman who performs or has some role at the burlesque establishment. Mm -hmm. And then that hooks her up to this new aspect that she hadn't even known existed before. Ah. And it's this particular world that I think it's really clever for them to dip their toe in because it's edgy. It's so much more than, um, I know some people might watch it and at a cursory glance, they're going to be like, what is this? Like a strip joint? And smutty. Yeah. And they're not going to really embrace the portion of it where there's this control that the woman has in a burlesque dance where, you know, it's very, very teasing and only they get to decide how far it's going to go and what exactly is going to be shown and that type of thing. And because we continuously hear Midge saying, I just need to do me. I need to, I need to be my own self. And when I, I, I I don't want to do this double entendre, but I have to, when I expose myself, that's when I'm most successful. And here she is seeing these women literally expose themselves on their own terms and they're able to be successful. And you can see that the club doesn't have that many people in it, but it has potential Right. There's like Mm -hmm. something here that I think she is just cluing into. Now, my big question to you is, is this like the club of the week or the club of an episode that's coming up? Or is this where we're going? We'll see this club again soon. Like, is this where she's going to work, though? Like, is this our next stepping stone in our career for like an episode or like like this is the marvelous Mrs. Maisel in a martini cup? dancing and or doing her comedy and or being the MC, whatever she's doing, like, is this going to be it? I don't think it's going to be it, but I do think this is going to be the next step. As we know from the outside world, however they interact with the gaslight is going to have to change because the actor playing Jackie has died. And they didn't really broach that in either of these two episodes. They had us in the gaslight, but not during operating hours. Mm -hmm. So maybe a change of venue is required, you know, just so that they can have that push and pull with the management, the bookers, whatever, um, that we can't get now at the gaslight. But this feels earned to end up in a woman-dominated place, doesn't it? I mean, I understand you're saying like, okay, the gaslight was like a, an obvious thing to X off to make sure that like we don't have that as a fallback anymore. And and I agree with you. But this was a step further. This was like, I mean, they could have just gone to another comedy club. They, I mean, New York City is large. I mean, they could have gone anywhere. You know, she's been on tour. Why a burlesque club? What are we doing here? I have to admit to a certain ignorance about the role of burlesque entertainment in that era and whether or not she's going to have an expected amount of luck 
in finding that it is a highly woman-centered business, even though ostensibly it's it's meant to entertain men looking for that kind of entertainment. I mean, behind the scenes, I think we all know that, that the women are coming out just fine on that deal because they're the one making making the money that the that the men are spending. I think that it was, it was so important that when we start this interaction with the burlesque club, the MC is retiring that night. I mean, I know that they leave it out, like on mute for her when she runs back to Susie and she's pointing her hand to the stage and she's nodding and talking or whatever, like... Right. <laughs> Next steps, right? Exactly. I think that's where we're going. I'm just so curious if that's where we end. Like, is does she end up owning this club? Does she end up having her own franchise of clubs? Like, is this a whole thing or is this just a one and done? Like how we had the radio shows or the little, you know, little things that happen for a week. And then even Shy Baldwin is like here, gone. You know, is this just something we're dipping our toe in or are we sticking around here for a while? The element of going to a place like this and exposing her to that empowerment aspect of what an audience will find acceptable that she hasn't exposed herself to in this. We can't stop saying exposed herself, right? <laughs> right. She has, that she hasn't. She's not familiar she with. She hasn't experienced. <laughs> there you go. Uh, per se, um, <laughs> thus far in her career. It's titillating. <laughs> 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 exactly. Exactly right. I mean, it does make you feel like there, there she are needs to places. go through this. Yeah, there are I don't stages. think this is where she ends up, but I, I think this is where she needs it's 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 a it's a hole in her resume to get to this megastar that I want her to be in the Maisel verse. Fascinating. Okay, I'm excited for that and I'm good with this storyline. So so that's that's Midge in a nutshell in this entire thing. We go through this entire constant misogyny, constant scraping, figuring it out. I loved the tour that she has with her parents through the whole apartment and everything that she's trying to show them just to have it turn around and be like, awesome. So yeah, we're going to have to say it's ours. You can't possibly be the one that has it. Oh, and also, by the way, it's like kind of yuck for like a woman to be an owner of an apartment. So like, we can't even tell people that. I mean, think of how many layers that they have so sleekly added where at the end you're like, how could she not want to explode on these people? I wonder if that's Amy coming through, even though this is a Dan episode, it's Amy's show. And so Amy was... A woman creator and and showrunner in the early 2000s, where it's getting to be more common to find that pairing, either creator, showrunner, or or creator and showrunner. I don't know that it was 20 years ago when, say, Gilmore Girls first came out. Mm -hmm. You could probably assume that boys club element of the entertainment world was something that Amy had to face quite a bit. I think across the board, I mean, that has been a theme across these all these seasons of her having to break into the boys club of comedy in general, right? Everywhere she is. I mean, for goodness sake, she has to be Mrs. Maisel. She can't even be Miriam or Midge. She has to be the wife of someone in order to really even get on the stage. There's so much of that throughout this entire series that, I mean, this is just blatant. It's like, I am done with this. I'm done of, you know, wife of, or daughter of, or any of that. Like I am a woman and I can handle this stuff. Really good stuff. I'm excited to see where she's going to go. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's almost like she's, she could be telling parts of her own story, but she needed to put it in the fifties and sixties 
to make it like, well, duh, obvious women didn't have it quite so. Because if she put it when she was doing it, people wouldn't buy it. They'd be like, it's not so bad. What do you mean? Well, I think the distance too in time makes it more palatable. We can shame Things that happened in the 50s and 60s. Because we were so ignorant back then. We were doing we such backward things. We weren't even alive. So we don't have to take responsibility for that. But if you put it in front of audiences now and it's happening right now, people shy away. Because they don't. What, what part do they play? They don't, they don't want to be a part of it, you know? But making it like this where it's just, like we said, so blatant and so distant from us that you can see it and be like, hey, that's no fair to Midge. That's ridiculous. As a disclaimer, I'd like to state publicly that I'm not and never have been in the boys club. <laughs> well, you're a boy, so by default you're in the no, boys club. No, I'm not in it. I promise you. <laughs> you are so. Nope, I'm not in it. Okay. Speaking of someone battling the boys club, let's move on to Susie and her exploits in this episode. There were several reposts that Caroline and I did of our of our podcast, not even reposts, more like late posts of our podcast leading up to season four for our coverage of season three. And in those posts, I asked about Sophie and whether or not we would see the end of Sophie, meaning like was the Broadway show her big undoing of herself or would she continue to dominate Mrs. Maisel's uh, future by by being vindictive that, that Susie sided with her, et cetera. People didn't really answer that question. What they answered was whether or not they wanted to see more of Sophie at all in any form. And what I remember of the answers was that it was mostly that they were done with Sophie for whatever reasons, whether they didn't like Jane Lynch, which was a very small amount, they didn't like Sophie, or they just thought it had run its course. I would say it was probably two or three to one that people were just done with Sophie. And given the way this episode goes, I also am starting to think for whatever reason, whether it's Sophie's just cooked, <laughs> you know, just she's just done. Or or I, I think this idea of, of severing the relationship might drag out for maybe another appearance, mm. but I think we're done. What do you think? This is a story that we actually hear commonly now, right? Someone misstepped, someone makes a big mistake in their career and they go to rehab or, you know, they, mm. they have a nervous breakdown. They, they need to go deal with themselves. It's a private time. They respect their privacy, that kind of stuff. Rather than anyone taking much of a you know, responsibility of like, yeah, I completely screwed up there on stage. She's just like, oh, I, need, I just need a rest, you know? And clearly the, the conversation with Harry lets you know that this isn't the first time she has her own, as Harry calls it, nut house. Like, is she at her nut house? You know, like that, that's not like something that uh, was like, what could they be talking about? You know? So I think for me, it was good to see Sophie for a hot second, but that's all I needed. And I needed to understand that for Susie's story, severing ties with Sophie very professionally and very definitively is an obstacle for her right now. So we had the money obstacle that we think has pretty much figured itself out, but now they had to introduce this new obstacle. So what else is Susie going to have to be worrying about? Well, she's still got Sophie Lennon, you know, she's still got this situation going with this contract. What did you think about her meeting up with Harry and the rapport between the two of them? Given the last time we saw Harry, it was with all those lawyers and it was pretty horrible. I was interested because I had thought that 
Harry had been painted without a lot of dimension. And so the idea that he could treat that situation as business, and there's kind of that weird, well, it's just business attitude that you see on TV or amongst people that deal with business. But in my life, business and personal things tend to overlap quite a bit. And so when someone makes a business decision that fucks you, it feels very personal, yes. right? Yes. So the fact that he could just move on and resume some aspect of mentorship with her was, I thought, very, very charming. You know, that he has this, you know, he's kind of an, an elder amongst people in that profession. And yeah, he, she screwed him, but it wasn't like a fatal situation between them. She screwed him? How do well, you figure? just trying to steal something. Remember the contract. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it, well, it was an attempted screwing, let's just okay. say. Okay, all right, an attempted. Yeah, no, I mean, I thought that he was refreshingly honest and truthful with her and put everything in perspective for the audience in terms of like, well, what is the world saying about Sophie Lennon and the entire Broadway experience? What are they saying about Susie? It's cool that behind the scenes, they know that Susie did almost did the impossible. Right. And that they were actually giving her accolades felt really great and that she had made it really far. Even even the small stuff talking about like, you know, the fact that people are suing all the time and he was actually going to help her and get rid of the Broadway investors. Very cool. I was like, way to go, Harry. Like that that actually gives my my like some warm and fuzzies to my soul because this part for Susie, when you really look back at the last half a season for her, Oh my God. I mean, she has been through it. Think of how many times we've seen Susie cry, for goodness sakes, you know, like Susie crying. I mean, that's crazy. We need some things to go her way. And I'm glad that we have this almost like grandfatherly mentor figure who can say, you're on the right track. Like, just freaking figure it out. And also that can be so blase, like, well, dump Midge. Okay, don't dump Midge, but do something else with it. You know, like whatever you choose, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not invested, but let me give you some advice any which way you want to go. Thankfully, Susie has someone back in her corner because you're right with the actor who plays Jackie passing away. Who does she have to talk to? Like, who does she have to bounce ideas off of? Not Chester. No, please, not Chester. Not Chester. So, yeah, I mean, I'm happy that Harry was back. I don't know if he's going to come back again, but we needed his little like nips of wisdom in this one to keep things rolling for her. Make it feel like we know what she's capable of. We can see that the that her profession actually respects her. She's not a laughing stock. She has some credibility in the profession and that she can still do things, which is a big load off because I was worried that she may have ruined everything. What do you think of this aspect of gaining more clients? Well, I think that having Tess have this job as a secretary, I keep envisioning this whole Susie Meyerson and Associates, but with Tess as the secretary and like somehow having this like whole building with other people. I feel like Imogene going to secretarial school as well. Like there's this whole team of women that feel like they are positioning themselves to become this Susie Meyerson. And then, and associates, you know, like I can see a pool and a pretty awesome team coming together. I think it could be amusing. I think she would add really green talent. I think there could be some comedic bits there if they add new talent that way. But this is the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So I don't see like true competition or something like that. 
I just see introducing new funny characters and that's about it. I think it, it is a great opportunity to bring in a different talent every week though. You know, which has its own benefit when you think about it. I mean, you know, it reminds me of like a Golden Girls episode when they're like interviewing talent or auditioning talent for like a talent show or whatever kind of like fundraiser or something they're doing. And you have those moments of just like people coming through, you know, and you have all these different acts and yeah, stuff like that's that. What I mean. Like that yeah. could be really funny. There's a lot of material there. Moving back to Midge's home life with her parents. We got a first chance to see the Village Voice team and a familiar face, which you had to point out to me. Digger Styles, if you guys don't know from Gilmore Girls, he is one of Lorelai's camp friends from way back when, and then also <laughs> dated him for some time as well, and was also a business partner of her father's. But when I saw Digger Styles, I was like, Digger! <laughs> yeah, yeah. So funny. What do you think about the Village Voice and this, this motley crew we have around the table? Looks like a good group. They are casual. They have a, a nice free-flowing meeting like they're actually friends. I think they're probably all talented and smart. This is the kind of brain incubator that Abe has been looking for for himself. And, and I think he sees uh, opportunities not only to get better at something that he wants to get better at, but he may not be a teacher anymore, but I, I bet you he looks at people like this crew and sees mentoring as a, as a possibility. The hustle and bustle of a newsroom is something that Dan and Amy know how to write. And I think they're going to do a great job of making this be like a dynamic, really interactive place where I feel like we're going to see a lot of exchanging of ideas. But also they just love that like super rapid dialogue. And, you know, we've got deadlines and there's things that have to happen and all that. And I, I think that that'll be fun. I think it'll like energize Abe. And I think that'll bring a lot of energy to the overall story. So I'm looking forward to more Village Voice. I mean, just seeing him doing his little typewriter in the bathtub. I mean, he's hilarious. Think of how far or at least changed that Abe has been from being the mathematician, you know, at the college. And then now seeing him here, you know, tapping away on his typewriter in the bathtub, like really just being so excited about his own ideas, you know, so different, but fun and like cool, you know? Well, and adapting in ways that we hadn't seen him do before. Him rolling with, uh, did I just show Mike Superman comics? <laughs> Making that that jump, you know, even though he's probably the smartest guy in the room, you know, and that may maybe have maybe has been true his entire life. And that's always been an advantage. But here now he doesn't want to lord that over anybody. He, he wants to use it. Sure. But he doesn't want to have that over anybody in this room anymore. That's a that's real growth. I mean, and the fact that when he got that paycheck and it was so small, they didn't tell us what it was, but they absolutely intimated it was it was could pay for an egg, maybe two eggs, something like that, right? But he showed it to his daughter. He wasn't embarrassed in the way of old Abe who would have been so prideful and hiding everything and instead he was like sharing this with her and having a laugh, sitting on the floor in his socks watching TV. I mean, this is a completely different man, right? In that moment with Abe and Midge sitting on the floor, checking out Abe's minuscule <laughs> new pay stub, do you think Abe is starting to understand Midge and this desire to have a happy life doing something that you want to do with this voice that you have and all of these aspects about her life that he has never really fully considered, but is now trying to embody himself. Do you think he's starting to understand her better? I will say that he had such a thick shell around himself 
about right and wrong ways of living a life that because I think we finally are seeing him crack out of that for himself and be able to kind of step out of that shell and see the world in a different way, which has been a long evolution for him when you really look over the course of the seasons, seeing him sitting on the floor with his daughter didn't make me think that he was understanding her more, but we're definitely on the path for him to start to see her and what she is trying to do. I think he's still very much on his own sure. journey right now. Yeah. And 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 again, like I said, just to have dropped the pride, to be able to talk to her about the paycheck, show her the paycheck, be able to laugh about the paycheck. That alone is going to start setting up a dynamic where I hope that they can start to learn more about each other. It's something that in Gilmore Girls, they never really got to because Ed Herman passed away for one. And, you know, they stopped the story at different points in a way where they never really fully got okay again. They never really learned about each other. They never really understood each other. Mm -hmm. You know, they had moments. They would have these little epiphanies here and there, little close moments. But whereas like with her mom on Gilmore Girls, you know, Lorelai and Emily, they had a lot more growth and an opportunity for that. But it didn't really have happen with her father, Richard. And so I, I'm just going to hypothesize, and I'm just throwing this out there for all of those who just love all the Paladino's work. In this case, I would say I can see where they might want to have this moment with Abe and Miriam and be able to explore that relationship in a way that, that they couldn't in their previous series mm -hmm. and actually have this staunch, perfectionist, by-the-book kind of man be able to relax and let his hair down a little bit and and show a paycheck and laugh about it and talk. And my goodness, honestly, sitting on the floor in his socks, that alone, I, I find like just speaks volumes, you know? And so I think we're making such huge strides him personally, that I have great hope that he will be the one who would understand where Midge is coming from and, and be able to come around. Now, having said that, her taking steps now into a burlesque club, I'm afraid... <laughs> Might take it a step too far. <laughs> well, we're now definitely asking him not just to accept her being a professional woman, a professional comedian, but now we're going to add this other element with the burlesque club that it might really start getting even more difficult. That's why I don't know where exactly how that's going to shape her career. But I would like to think that I'm seeing a lot of just father-daughter growth, you know, not, not professional understanding, but just wanting to be there for each other, wanting to support each other. Sitting there in, at night watching TV is something that I do with my own father. You know, on different nights, I'll go over to my parents' house. And I, I said it last night. I was like, I'm just going to go lay on my parents' couch. Like, they don't have to chit-chat with me. They don't have to do anything. But I'm just going to watch TV with them. And, you know, there is something about just laying on the couch in your socks, you know, next to your parents where they can be saying something or not doesn't even matter. But there's like an understanding. There's like a bond there that is forming that I can see with them that I'm really excited to see how season four continues with them. Rose still feels like a lost cause. <laughs> she? Oof. They really did not explore her matchmaking idea in episode one or two. They did expose, once again, <laughs> um, you know, in episode one, they did say, hey, don't you realize that we 
Abe and Rose were actually um, helped getting together by a matchmaker. Like you don't even realize that your mother paid this woman to put us together. And it was like, Abe was having this like, oh my God, realization. Like my life is a lie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, Rose's actual career and how she's going to make money at this and where this is really going didn't get much development in these two episodes. So you know, that for me, predictions wise is still up in the air of like, how exactly is she going to go about doing this? And if she can start to, again, I feel like she's in a similar journey as Abe, like she first has her pride and she has to have her own success in her own life. And then little by little, as she's starting to have that and experience that, maybe she'll start to have more of a relationship with Midge where they could talk about that. But my goodness, again, the burlesque club is not going to be the venue in which these parents are going to really have any close bond with Miriam here. This is going to be uh, quite dramatic, I think, if they figure out she's working there. Any predictions for the coming pair of episodes? Three and four. Well, let's see. Okay, so I feel like I just did the Wisemans, right? I feel like I did pretty pretty decently there. I think Susie continues on with her career. I really look forward to this concept of building her associates. If they do not use Imogene... She delegated the move-in to Imogene. Yeah, that was Miriam, but yeah. I mean, if Imogene and Tess are not getting educated to be some sort of support staff for Susie and Midge, then I don't get what we're doing. You know, somehow these women have come back into the fold and they're going to school and or they're getting experience in a business. I I, I just see this working out. I really hope it does, because I think that would be very exciting. What do you think happens with Joel and May? I mean, Joel's club seem to be hopping. Things seem to be moving. But, you know, we do have this payola aspect. I mean, is he going to have to close his club or does his club go burlesque or like what happens here? <laughs> well, that I think that's uh, much further down the road, those questions. I think immediately, though, yeah, the part that writes itself is what I've been saying about the culture clash with the parents mm-hmm. and meeting May and et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff is going to play out when they're saying – she doesn't look very Jewish or something like that. Oh, Lordy. Well, Moish is not PC. No. So I, I was just channeling a little <laughs> Moish for you there. I got it. I got it. Well, you know, I, I wonder what will happen with the Elder Mazels now having everyone move out of Queens. How do we fold them back in? I can see what you're saying. Well, if we start to have meet the parents. He's a landlord. And he's a landlord. But but I think the meeting of the parents, like switching out all of the, the Weissman clan for having Joel and May have start being at their house for dinners or get togethers or whatever, I can start to see where, okay, now we've traded them out, right? Like who's going to, who's going to dance with them? Well, we've got new partners. That first meeting with the Maisels, it's not going to create a very obvious second time to come over for dinner. You say that. But, I do say that. But May is quick. She's sharp. She's smart. And she's not somebody who's going to be totally thrown back on her heels. She's not Rose. She's not going to clutch her pearls and be like, oh my, I can't believe you're you're acting like this. She's or, smarter than Joel. And she can be quick. Like she can handle a lively, energetic chaotic situation. Think about what what that gambling established area looks like. She can handle all of that. So Shirley and Moish might not be this intimidating force that they are to so many other people. When she's used to the chaos and the noise and just the constant talking, 
I feel like she's going to be able to handle herself in a much different way. I look forward to her not sparring per se, because I don't I don't need it to be negative. But like the back and forth, the volleying of conversation could be fascinating. We've seen this in so many sitcoms, et cetera, you know, like the idea of them being completely decent to her at whatever this meeting is. And then afterwards, uh, cornering Joel. Yeah, of course, you'll have to get rid of her kind of thing. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's odd. that is 100% on the table. I could see that. Overall, what's your gauge on episodes one and two of season four? Are you excited? Were they busy enough? What did enough happen? What do you think? I was thinking about comparing this season opener to other season openers. So like season two, I remember being so blown away by Paris and all like the bright colors and Mm. the way they shot it was so overtly cinematic compared to most TV. And then season three, we had the USO show, the big dance number or whatever with the white Christmas and yeah. all of that. Super splashy with all the like rockets type. An extended dance yes. scene. And this one, they opted to go an, a, a, a very acceptable way, which is essentially picking up right where we left off. It's not splashy cinematic. I mean, they had some cool camera shots coming around the car during the flashback that you don't normally get with a lot of TV. It's more of a movie kind of Very kinda stylized. I mean, I thought very beautiful. But not on the scale of the USO show or Paris. And so, but don't let me say, don't let me make you think that I think that's shit. I think in our prediction podcast for the end of season three, I thought that maybe a time jump might be in order. Oh yeah, we definitely thought that. However, I'm not disappointed by picking up the story right here because they made it good. You know, they made it so that Midge is outraged. What if we had missed this epiphany about this man's world that's now going to I mean, she knew it. It's not an epiphany in the sense that she didn't know it ahead of time, but now it's something that's a motivating force for her. What if we had missed that, you know, in terms of the, of a time jump, right? Right. This is foundational to the character moving forward. So I'm great with this, the way that they're picking up, even without the, the dancing girls. (laughs) You did get some burlesque girls. Well, that's one. I mean, like a whole (laughs) troop. Yeah, but she had no top on. This is definitely next level. I was actually thinking that, man, they are actually, for the first time, I feel like taking advantage of being on Amazon as opposed to being on like Fox or CW or something like that. Like we had some topless women. Well, we've seen Midge's you know? boobs before. I know, but but it's but it's been so long ago. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I feel like we're really taking advantage of this, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. Like I'm like I'm really She's seeing pro this. boob. She- Bring her more boob. Episodes one and two for me were less about what happened and about how they went about it. I said this at the beginning of this episode, and I have to say it again. For as much as, yes, we're not, we were not in Paris, we were not at a USO show, but this is the Paladinos at their best. The conversation, the dialogue, the snappy, witty banter, the choreography of two people having this debate with one another, going around in a Ferris wheel with all these other people talking and having these banter constantly coming 360 degrees banter everywhere. I mean, that's like something I've never seen before. So even though it's, no, it's not Paris, but 
it was fresh and it was new and it was quintessential Paladino in terms of the way that they want your head swimming in dialogue. And we had so many examples of that and so many hilarious moments like the fake birthday party, you know, changing the date and all of that kind of stuff. And then her realizing that her parents probably also changed the date of her birthday. Like there was so much going on there that I love how they take chaos and package it in a way that feels palatable. And, and at the end of it, your, your brain is like swimming, but you're like, that was exciting and fun. And I look forward to the next episode. This is Caroline. And this is Paul. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts. Please give us the highest rating so other people can find this podcast. Tell your mom, tell your friends. <laughs> Make sure you go check out our written content over on Pop Culture Review, our sister company. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.